Welcome to the Good Bottle Podcast. Join Chris and Drew, two self-proclaimed booze pundits with a lifetime of industry experience as they walk you through the alcohol business and how today's headlines affect the industry. Each week, the guys will be joined by a special guest that will help them break down these stories and offer their own expertise to the podcast. So, pour yourself a glass of your favorite drink and sit back. This is the Good Bottle Podcast. What is up? What's cracking, everybody? I tell you, Drew, that uh, that music hits me the same way as the uh, the halftime music hit me yesterday. And I like it. Just it just that when I hear that music and it starts playing in my ears, it's like I turn into a brand new, like a, a whole old person, a brand new person. I don't know, man. Fucking love. You know it. what's? I think what's funny about that is as as we were sitting here and I was waiting to um, you know thinking about what I'm going to say and how I'm going to greet everybody. I'm like, I'm like, do I mention the fact? That today is Valentine's Day. And then my thought went to, you know what? No, because I don't want to date this episode, right? I want someone to be listening and be like, this is when this happened, da da this, da that. And then you went ahead and dropped the Super Bowl halftime reference. And it was just like, God, in the first. So I was like, well, I guess we're talking about it. I guess it's the day of love. And um, and we're here talking with someone that we love, which we're going we're gonna, to we're gonna talk about in a second. I do. Because right? I have a better, I do, love them. I have a better, yeah. I do have a better, a better segue for them. But, um, we're not there yet. Yeah, dude. I think the the overwhelming response to the Super Bowl halftime show is like one of the most encouraging things that's happened in our culture in probably <laughs> six years. Where it was just like everybody just universally was like, that was dope and 50 is now a dollar. Like that was just the yeah, general yeah, consensus yeah, yeah. across the board, right? I, I will say of- I, was a, I was a little bummed that we didn't get uh, hollow pock. You know, I was I was half expecting hollow pock, man. You know, I, I feel like I wasn't the after, only one. I, I, you know, after seeing it a couple of years ago, it just is like, you know, anytime that you do these recreations, it makes me deeply uncomfortable, you know, because I'm just kind of like, oh, there's so many liberties that you can take. Like, I don't know if you've ever seen like the deep fake Tom Cruise, but like, that's oh, yeah. some terrifying shit. Right. Oh, that, and, and incredibly hilarious. Well, there's there's that. And I think that Eric now it's still very innocent. Right. It's still very much like, you know, funny and things like that. But it could definitely um, take a turn for the worse. But hopefully it doesn't happen anytime soon. So like, I was I'll tell you where my my thought process went is that we're watching this performance. And, you know, obviously, if you're a you know, if you grew up in late 80s, mid 90s, like, you know, deformative years, like this was a big deal right to watch everybody perform and when 50 hung you know hung from the rafter and was like i just thought to myself it wasn't i didn't go like "Ooh, what a fun surprise i went why didn't they promote 50 like because it wasn't like multiple like people that you weren't expecting it was just one as if he couldn't be part of that lineup it's like so I mean, because you kind of understood everything, you know, like, you know, having Dre, having Eminem, having Mary J, and then having Kendrick Lamar, because like Lamar brings in the younger generation, right? But it was just like, and then 50, you know, drops down. It's just kind of like, like, why wasn't he part of the promotion? You know, like, wh- I don't I don't get it. Like, what was that? I mean, I'm sure he was excited to be there, you know, but I don't know. What are your thoughts? Should 50 been part of the promotion? Would have it would have made you more excited? Or were you excited to see him like, oh, my God, there he is in the club? Uh, I uh, admittedly have not been paying that much attention to all the promotion. I just knew Dre was doing the halftime show. That's all I knew. I knew it was going to be Dre and Mary. That's that's the so, only like level of attention that I paid to it. So um, 
my parents came over and watched the game with us and we're sitting there we're in you know we're we're vibing out to the halftime show and Mary J comes out and you know she sounds great she looks great and my mom just sort of goes yeah Mary Joe and I just was like oh my god <laughs> just that is not that is the suburban I, lifestyle right there. It was brutal. I can hear that coming um, out of your mom's mouth too. That's, that's yeah, good. yeah. I was just kind of like, I was like, oh, you're adorable. This is great. Um, but uh, I do have some exciting news for everybody. Oh, today I officially booked my ticket. I'm headed back to Miami for the Rum Festival. So the big Rum Fest that I was at two years ago, the big event that I got to do before every the whole world shut down. I'm headed back, which. I could not be more excited about. I love Miami. I love that. Um, I love that rum festival. And it's just a great opportunity to see, you know, lots of amazing brands, lots of amazing people. And it's funny because tonight's guest, the last time we saw this person in person was at Rumfest, but in San Francisco. I can't imagine that he's going to make the trip not only across the pond, but then across the States to go to Miami. It might be should go the other way but our guest tonight is kyle reutner the gm of kohana rum kyle welcome thank you for being our guest tonight bud i'm stoked thanks for having me boys so um like we just said last time we saw you was at was at rum fest you're obviously in charge of one of our favorite things in the entire entire world last season we had justin on who is like your unofficial official Kind of sales rep, not a sales rep. Nobody knows what he really does, but he's out here slinging Kohana in California. But you're back, you're back on the island, making sure that we get that delicious rum. So, can you tell us a little bit about Kohana, and then I guess first and foremost, what are you sipping on? Um, so I'm I'm sipping on rum appropriately, uh, not my rum. I'm sipping on a 13 year release from Clarendon uh, that Impex did. Oh, you got um, one. Wow. Yeah. It's delicious and fun. Um, very different juice uh, than we usually get on the island. So it's nice to be able to get something cool. And then I'm an overachiever, and I got really fired up at one of the articles we're going to talk about. So I also opened a bottle of wine. Uh, <laughs> so, so I'm also drinking a uh, Blanc de Blanc from Pierre Peters. But, you know, uh, we'll just talk about the rum first. So, um, so with that being the case, I mean, I, cause I did something I do want to highlight, you know, being on the Island of Oahu, you know, and it just mentioned like, you don't get a whole lot out there. I mean, I know I've, I've gone out, I've done, I've done some agave trainings out there and people are really appreciative and stuff like that. But I mean, like, you know, as someone who is, is into spirits as much as you are, like, how tough is it living in the most beautiful place in the world, but also the most potentially driest when it comes to options yeah please for all of the listeners cry for me i live on central oahu uh please uh feel really bad for how difficult it is for me to get spirits here now it's it's you know like just think of it being 10 years ago as far as access goes for for what you're going to do so like mainland what you were getting 10 years ago we're getting today right so there's just a there's just a delay um, yeah. So it's not it's not all that bad. Uh, we just you know have to travel a little bit more. Well, I mean, I think you just you know I think you guys just look at the situation and you like threw your hands up and you're like, "F it, we're going to make our own rum." 
So, um, so what's that been like for, for Kohana? And I guess, you know, for the uninitiated, although if someone's listening to our podcast, I mean, and if they've been any type of consistency, like this is a rum that we do talk about a lot because we are, you know, borderline obsessed with it, but let's hope that we're still bringing in new listeners. Tell us a little bit about Kohana rum. Yeah. So our, our distillery really starts as a farm, I think like most great ones. So we grow every bit of sugarcane ourselves, crush it, ferment it, and distill it. Um, I think being a grass-to-glass distillery is the best way to describe it. Um, people say other things, but I think that's the easiest one to grasp onto. Um, to that end, we do three things different than just about everybody else in the world, and it's because we kind of are able to, and we don't we don't have any anything holding us back. So we only grow and use heirloom Hawaiian sugarcane. What most of your listeners may not realize is Hawaii had sugarcane, I don't know, about 500 years before the Caribbean ever got their first stock of cane. And most of the biodiversity in the Caribbean is because Hawaiian cane started getting brought there to mix with the single cane that they got. So it's a really unique history and something most people have no clue about at all. So we have a really diverse and unique uh, bundle of canes. We have somewhere around 90 different named canes, and we think somewhere in the 40s as far as genetic diversity. We use those and we we crush them, use their juice. Uh, we call it Hawaiian agricole rum. We use, you know, the fresh sugarcane juice. We're going to, you know, only do one varietal at a time. So we're only using one type, just like a winemaker would use Chardonnay to make a Blanc de Blanc or, you know, a a great winemaker elsewhere might use just a Pinot Noir. We don't, we don't do any blending. So unlike most other places, we're really, really specific about the use of our cane and the types and exploring that side of things. So that's us in a, I guess, a small nutshell. Yeah. And now how did you find yourself, you know, getting into this position where, you know, I, you're like, like, of course I want to be the GM of, something that people are not completely aware of and are probably going to misunderstand for years. Like this sounds great. <laughs> Sign me up. No, I mean, it, it's funny. So in maybe 2010, I got a message, just a cold call. I was running a couple bar programs. So I, I come from a hospitality background uh, first. So I, I re- was able to manage and run and work for some of the best people in Hawaii and learn a bunch of dope shit from them and, and put myself in a position where I, I just got a cold call uh, from Robert Dawson, one of the two founders. And he's like, hey, I'm doing this really cool thing. Uh, I, I just want to take you to lunch. I was like, free lunch. Sweet. This is great. I'm all about that. <laughs> so I sat down and talked shit with Robert for a little bit. And and he, you know, he said all the right things. And, and the truth was, I had seen it a couple of times already where people had sort of bullshitted. Um, and, and weren't really on point with what the follow through was going to be. There's a lot of talk in the spirits world and wine world, as you guys well know, uh, people say some things and do other things. And so I was pretty familiar with that, especially as I went with Hawaii based spirits. There's a lot of imported and add a Hawaiian word or a hula skirt or whatever. And I had no interest in doing that. If I was going to do that, I was going to move back to the mainland or, or somewhere else and, and do something closer uh, to where things were from. So when Robert said, oh, we're going to we're going to grow it ourselves. Nobody else. We can't buy it from somebody else because nobody grows these things. I was really struck. 
And uh, it gives us, you know, a lot of work to do, but it also gives us a differentiation point that it's really difficult to, you know, copy or mimic or anything like that uh, in an authentic way. So I just, I, I got the lucky call to be, you know, hey, we want you to be like our brand ambassador or whatever when we finally get around to it. And I took the job probably five years after that first conversation. Uh, and it's just been, oh, what's the next, you know, position up or what, what do we need me to do? And it's grown into a general manager position. So now I have, you know, a farm manager, a distillery manager, marketing folks, you know, whatever it may be working with us and, and really a small crew, but it's, it, it's a group of five or six sitting at the table, including, you know, Captain Aloha, Justin Dolier, who you had last year, uh, <laughs> doing the sales stuff on the mainland. So yeah, that's, I, 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 I'll be honest, I limped into this. Let's just be, let's be real. Got lucky. Well, that's funny. So, and to update the listeners, uh, Justin's been binge listening to all of our episodes recently. And Chris, I don't know if he reached out to you, but he reached out to me and was just asking me questions about all the different things that we've talked about, you know, since he <laughs> hasn't been, I don't know. Cause it, we've talked about before, like I, we don't, as soon as we record this, we immediately forget everything that we say. Oh yeah. Like, almost immediately. Whitewash. Whitewash. And yeah. so yep. he, he was like peppering me with, with a bunch of different questions. I just was like, honestly, I don't know most of these, but like he asked me about, our favorite rum producer in uh, Barbados. And so I got to share some feelings with him and the inside, the inside story, which you know, <laughs> I'll never put out there in the public, but if you text me about it, I'll tell you everything about it. Um, so that was, that was fun. So, you know, I got to visit Kohana um, five years ago, I want to say now, uh, four or five years ago. And then, but I had been introduced to the rum previously actually by Chris in a, in a, a uh, friend of ours, Kyle, they had, they had gone and done the Western uh, Nationals out there and they brought brought me back some some Kohana. Uh, but Chris, you've been more familiar, you're, you know, for for quite a bit longer than most people. And I just want to, you know, so so Chris, what are you drinking? And then what has been your experience with Kohana rum? Uh, I am drinking a, a lovely hot toddy uh, because my beautiful little daughter uh, came home from daycare with a cold and gave it to me. So hot toddies it is. And uh, you know what? It's hitting the spot. So I, I'm pretty good with it. Also wasn't that cold this year. So I, I didn't really get any hot toddies throughout the year while like serving them to people or anything like that. So this is the first time I'm getting it for the year or for the season. I'll say it's pretty good. I'm, I'm into it. I got a little bit of cognac in there, a little bit of honey, <laughs> some Meyer lemons from the backyard. We're all good. Um, my experience, uh, oh man, my experience with Kohana was, I think the first time I had it, Kyle gave it to me at Pig and Lady. I think it was the first time I tasted it. And I think it was new make and it was not great. <laughs> it was, it was, uh, rough on the edges. It was, uh, youthful and, uh, really unbalanced, but, um, there was there was a structure there that I was like really fascinated with and the story and really wanted to see the farm and really wanted to see, um, get to know more about it. And uh, I mean, and we are here we are right like you and I are lightweight obsessed with this brand because it's it's come full circle into being this like just insanely delicious juice. Um, yeah. And it, it, it it's really worth more. You know, I. 
It's it's so odd, right? Drew and I talk about this, and I'm sure Kyle, you've had this conversation more times than than not, which is, you know, so few people actually understand rum, and trying to get trying to get rum into the into the general zeitgeist into the conversation and and have people just get on board and start experimenting with it and drinking it and and loving it and uh, and but to have something even more obscure right so you not only are you just having rum <laughs> then you're having rum from Hawaii which is fine and lightweight expected in, in some some sense of thought but you're doing agricole from Hawaii with ancestral um, uh, heritage varieties of of grass and yep. they're all different and it's crazy. Like you just, you would have no clue if it, like I would have no idea had I not actually gone there and experienced that. And you like, you know, fresh cut that juice and fresh cut the cane and like press the juice and like, let me taste the juices from the different canes and how wildly they different they are. It's just nuts, man. And, and so really watching this, watching this brand just develop into the quality that's there right now is just, uh, it's, it's like a special place in my heart, man. I, I love it. And I love that farm and I love, I love that distillery. And anytime, anytime uh, friends of mine go out there, I always tell them, go see the distillery, go see the distillery. It's a little bit of a drive. It's fine. It's beautiful. You're going to love it. Just do it. Yeah. Thanks for bearing with us, brother. I mean, you know, those early days where I had to take part in uh, helping make some of those cuts, we, you know, I, I'm a little greedy. So, so some of them weren't all that tight and some of those permits <laughs> were, Nice and nice and dirty. So, you know, it, it's funny. We talk all the time because, you know, we're I, I it, it's funny. I'm going to get into it later a little bit, but we're a distillery, not a brand. So it's like we do this shit and we should get better. So like if we're not improving, if there aren't stories like that, like, oh, like, you know, this at this one point, I didn't really like this or that or the other. Well, yeah, we're we're learning this. We don't have 200 years worth of distilling history and we're okay i'm i'm down to embrace that not i'm i think a lot of the american craft thing is like they put up such a facade like they already freaking know we're still learning and yeah we're dope but we're still learning well i mean there's so many so many people who are willing to like just don the mantle of master distiller just out the gate just because just because they light the fires in the in the beginning of the day like it it just doesn't make sense you know like you got to know your tools you got to work your way through it there's got to be mistakes. You know what I mean? Like you don't, you don't come out the gate building a, a perfect bookcase the first time you touch wood, right? Like you got to learn how to, you got to learn how to saw, you got to learn how to hammer, you got to learn how to sand shit down. For sure. It's the same thing. I, I think that, you know, the, the thing that I'll say really about Kohana is that it's, it's really just kind of like this, like this rum nerd, heaven because um i mean i remember justin brought me and 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 i have a pretty substantial collection of kohana rum right and um we we met in a parking lot and he gave me more rum because that's where most of my rum deals go down and it was and it was right when you guys were starting to really you know delineate between the different canes and be like, this is how this cane tastes, this is how this cane tastes. And, you know, and that's something that you see a little bit in the French Caribbean and you definitely see it more in the European market. And we just don't, we just don't get that. A lot of it has to do with the fact that the rum market in the U S is not nearly what it is in other parts of the world. So we don't look at looking at different types of sugar cane and stuff. So like, you know, you're, 
you're getting this different terroir, you're getting this different, you know, provenance for it. And it's really fun to taste those subtle differences. Now, on the flip side of that, what's really great, I think, about Kohana is that, first of all, it's on the way out to the Dole Pineapple Plantation, right? So you can make a whole day out of it. Something for you, something for the kids, right? Or for me, it's both. Both of them are great. Um, but, uh, you know, we went out there with my in-laws and they had such a great time. And they're not spirits people. They'll drink some wine and stuff like that, but they don't really have much interest, you know, beyond just kind of like a glass of Chardonnay at dinner. And um, the way that you guys had your tour set up and then more importantly, how your visitor center set up like it's so inviting and when you have a first of all a rum category that's completely misunderstood and then one that's even more slight that's like way more complicated than your captain morgans of the world and stuff like that and you guys have found this way to make it approachable and fun like it's just such a testament to you know yeah like you guys are getting you know, better at making the distillate, but you're also getting better at the experience because I've been to at least two iterations of that visitor center, right? Because mm-hmm. the last time I went in, I was, I was like, this is all new shit. I have never seen any of this stuff before. Like, and it was, <laughs> and it was awesome, right? And it was really cool to, uh, to, you know, to do that. And I know that you also have, you know, sometimes kind of backed into the corner when it comes to using the word um, you know, agriculture. And so even not even going into that part of this part of the conversation, because honestly, we don't give a shit. Um, those people are idiots <laughs> and I can't stand them. But, you know, when it comes to taking something that when you're talking about rum and you open up that bottle to pour for someone who's not familiar with it and that agriculture funk comes out and just assaults your senses. I mean, what's that conversation like? I mean, how are you taking this to people who, you know, like, how are you explaining it to maybe people who have never had a, you know, a, an agricultural style run before? Yeah, we try to we try to bridge gaps uh, in the conversation and go to them instead of vice versa. So having having a conversation instead of making people go into it dry is not what I really wanted to do. You know, I came into this as like, you know, this pretentious mixologist, know it all dude who's just like, oh, like what's in the glass should just, that should be the only thing that matters. Like here, pour it and like great people are going to figure it out. But the truth is having something explained at least a little bit to you, like, hey, we're closer to a properly made agave distillate than we are to most rums that you've heard of. So like just starting the conversation there, look, have you, have you ever had anything, you know, have you ever had a, you know, a grappa or a proper Udavi or anything like that. And the answer is usually no, but with tequila, the answer is usually yes. So we do a lot of like hopping between the better made agave spirits and what we do instead of embracing other rum manufacturers, because as soon as you hooey up with these really delicious rums from Barbados or Jamaica or wherever it may be, we're misleading them. They're not going to see what it is. And and because we embrace the grass, that's what it's all about. Now, it's also why our visitor center is set up the way it is. Once you understand where you are, why you're there, and what this place is about, then you taste cane juice and then you taste rum. Like you're, you're in on the story. You're a part of something, right? So that's, that's a big part of it. But when we're, when we're cold out there and, you know, in a bar, 
and Joe comes up and says, oh, like, I want to know what's in that really pretty ridiculous bottle uh, that bartenders hate. Um, I go, you know, here, this is this is what it's about. This is, you know, this fresh distillate that you're probably unaware of the intention of it tasting this way. Like people are like, oh, like something went wrong. Like, no, that's what sugar cane <laughs> juice distillate is like. And let's go. And and that's not just sugarcane juice. That's lahi or papa'a or kalaoa or mahayula or whatever it may be. Yeah, and that's that's where we go. So so to go and bridge the gap and sort of like give out give out handshakes. Uh, we talk at the distillery all the time. When you open our bottle, the goal is that you're in the middle of a sugarcane field. Unfortunately, most people don't know what the middle of a sugarcane field smells like, but you're still transported that way. I mean, and that's that's got to be the goal. We don't want to hide any of that awesomeness. But we distill very intentionally to like push tropical notes first, and not really embrace the heat ketony and like crazy black olive stuff that a lot of our like agricole cousins do. I mean, we definitely push tropical, um, and it's just a difference in how we distill, right? So yeah, that's awesome. I think it's a great it's a great way to do it. Anytime that you can you know take something familiar and then bridge the gap. Now the other thing that I want to talk about, and I'm gonna go grab them because there's some on my shelf over here, but can you talk about the bottle shape and yeah, why you sure. guys pick to do the squares? I'm gonna go just touch yeah. it so I can touch it while you're talking about it. No, you're great. I mean we we picked it like all right, I'm I'm gonna level with everybody out there. I know that it's not the most convenient bottle shape for bartenders. Um but I'll say this, as somebody who's lived in Hawaii for the last 20 years and watched brands be made, cheapened, and exported off our island, what we wanted to do was give you the chance to love the way it looked as much as you loved the way it tasted. You wanted, I wanted people to go home and be proud to have it on their back bar, to be proud to have it and gift it and do all of that. So all of this, I mean, we, we went through so many mold designs and begging people to make us, you know, this gorgeous, you know, cubic bottle because we didn't want it to be another, you know, hula skirt or palm tree or whatever it was. We wanted this like idea of what modern Hawaii is like, which is not kishi. It's, it's got respect. It's, it's, it's really, it can be rigid sometimes and it's always gorgeous. And that's why we chose that. We didn't have any intention of using something common, which I'll tell you what, last year during the glass shortage uh, really was uh, deemed a bad decision, <laughs> but, but it's nice <laughs> to have all of it back. Um, you know, when your glass supplier is like, yeah, we'll have it to you in six months after the six months. Yeah, it took an, not quite an extra year, about an extra eight months, I guess. But Damn. yeah, but yeah, the whole point is to have something that, you know, from Hawaii that doesn't look uh, kitschy and cheap and doesn't embrace this sort of like, I don't know, uh, Captain Cook ideals of, of Hawaii. Instead, it's what it actually is. Yeah, I think that, so I'm holding the bottle right now. And so this is one of the, what is this, 375? Yeah, 375 and I have the 750s. And what's great is that they're both square. And mm -hmm. so they're very similar, um, but just like the color pattern on it and stuff like that. And then this is actually a pretty uh, old bottle. So this is your Coho. 
Um, and the, the best part is, is that, you know, on the side of it, you know, you guys always put the information, right? And, um, well, somebody messed up with the stamp, so they had to cross it off with a permanent marker and put, so, so before, I don't know what, I don't know what month it was, but the, the harvest, the harvest was changed to October when it was harvested in 2017, that print is still there. And then the cane variety was changed from the, uh, Menule to the Kia. So, um, oh, interesting. Yeah. So, oh, um, I, oh my gosh, you know how many of those there are? That's so there good. Oh there, no, there's, I, well, there's, you can there's, see. About, there's about six cases before we caught it. And I was like, you know, I'm, you know, a 50, uh, I don't know, a 15 cent label, you know, I just couldn't come out of pocket and relabel all of those, I guess. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what we were, you know, sometimes you do baby brand stuff, I guess. I don't know. Oh. No, it's always it's always been like one of the most endearing things about this bottle to me. And, you know, and I've had this, you know, since that trip. Right. Mm-hmm. So it's been and I still have a little bit of it left. And I don't I mean, it's like one of those things like, like will I ever finish this? I don't know, because I don't <laughs> want it to ever be like completely gone, you know. Yeah. Um, so it's we'll, we'll definitely include a picture of the bottles uh, on, on the Instagram post and the social media posts, just in case anybody hasn't seen them. But um I mean, I remember when they first started making it into the California market, I was at PCH in San Francisco and spotted it on like the back of the bar and the top. And it was the first time I had seen the 750 and I had just, I just lost my mind. It was so yeah. exciting to see that stuff. And, um, and it's, you know, still slowly, but surely making its way out there. We're plugging is, along. Great. Yeah. Um, awesome. All right. Well, I think it's time for our opinions on facts we've heard from reputable Reputable sources. Wow, you did it. Good job, buddy. You did it. <laughs> well, I guess you have to tell the listeners, it's like I'm on a new routine where I'm, I've been up since 5.45 this morning. It's now 9.30, so <laughs> the train's coming off the tracks, everybody, just, just to <laughs> let you know. Um, but our first story actually has to do with drinking habits, and we're going to talk about why millennials don't drink wine. So basically this article lists out all these different reasons on why millennials are not drinking wine and how they have much more of a discerning palate. And then also just a lack of income where they can, you know, they can't really afford to experiment and things like that. And, um, and it is a solid read. It's on vine pair. I, I suggest that, or, um, well, no, no, that one was on vine pair. That was on uh, the New York times, New York times wrote, wrote it. And uh, I suggest everyone go check it out, but I wanted to, just use that as an umbrella for, for our conversation. So, you know, they talked about the different trends that have happened and it obviously, you know, on this show, we've talked about, um, you know, RTDs and seltzers and all that fun stuff. But after reading this article and you've seen some of the reasons that were listed, you know, for the, you know, the, you know, why millennials aren't drinking, you know, Kyle, what are some of your thoughts? What were your feelings towards, you know, what, what do you think are the main, the main factors in millennials not not embracing wine right now. Uh, I, I, all right, can I can I start with? I, I didn't realize we were going to do the umbrella, so I, I just want to get something off my chest about the article. Okay, yeah, I don't, sure. No, no, go ahead. I don't think there's anything more boomer than blaming the millennials for not being able to sell your own wine. I think, <laughs> like, is there? Is there something more? Amen, baby. Amen. Like, like, and I get it. This is the New York Times, and we have to deal with some hyperbole and some, like, 
some some stuff happening. But like my guy, it took you a long time in this article to take any responsibility whatsoever to overlooking emerging markets for so long that it's now going to hurt your bottom line. I'm sorry, my guy, but here's the deal. People have to buy your shit <laughs> for you to keep doing it. And you decided to stop talking to people. Give me a break. I, I just like, I, I, all right. So that's, that's on the article side. Now to actually address the problem, winemakers have just forgotten to, to talk to the people. And honestly, the millennial generation, and I, I think I'm called a geriatric millennial. Um, That's amazing. And, I'm right there with the, you, buddy. <laughs> yeah, so I'm a geriatric millennial, so I'm supposed to be a part of this, I suppose. And then, you know, what, Gen Z afterwards, they're going to embrace wine if wine embraces them. And and the problem is they haven't. They've, they've gone everywhere else. They're counting on the old guard. And they're counting on all this other stuff instead of like finding a way to talk to them. Imagine how hard it is to be a 26-year-old kid right now going to the store and buying wine. You're going to do one of two things. You're going to go to a grocery store and not find anything good and have no information in front of you. And you've got a million choices. So you're not going to do that. You're going to go buy the thing you know about because your friend shared it with you. Or you're going to go to a bottle shop. And with very few exceptions, those spaces are run by guys who don't actually want those folks there and don't want to have those conversations. Obviously, good bottle, I would assume. I haven't been to visit you guys, but I assume, Chris, like you're going to actually embrace people and talk about like the dope stuff going on. But I, I don't think that generally is what's happening. So they're losing space because of their own actions and their own sort of like gatekeeping. So, no, yeah, that's that's my uh very uh, douchey uh, opinion while I drink some champagne. No, so okay, so let me let me let me follow that up because one of the things that that you mentioned a couple times was they need to start having conversations with the consumer. And yep. one thing that we saw over the last two years was this unprecedented um, access to producers all over the world. Everyone was stuck at home. They were doing virtual tastings. I mean, Kyle, I went to one of yours. It was fun to heckle you the whole time. You counted it great. Um, But it's like, you know, you had these happening all over the world. And I know that some of them were happening with wineries as well, but they did always feel stuffier, I guess. And I I mean, and everybody else, I love wine. I am not part of the problem. In fact, I am the opposite. I'm buying more wine now than I've ever bought in my life. Like it's just, that is where most of my spending money is going is towards wine. But with that said, like I also know that when I'm at a wine shop and one in particular that I really love that I'm constantly doing, you know, different tastings at and stuff like that, like I'm bringing that median age down by like 20 years. Yep. And that's just the reality, even though like the guy who runs it is about 10 years older than I am. And, but it's like, it, that is a problem. So, so with all that said and the things that you guys have done, it's like how how do you think winemakers can reach a different audience? I mean, do you I mean, obviously there's no magic solution, but like what are some of the steps you think they should take? Do you wanna do you wanna take this one, Chris, or do you want me to yeah, keep man. swing in the bat? No, I got it. Warmed <laughs> up, baby. Coming yeah, yeah. Coming coming in. Um I think this 
the simplest answer is hiring people onto your team so that way you can have the conversations with them so that way they can have the conversations with people within their community. That's the easiest way. Um, you're not, you know, you say like influencers, brand ambassadors. What are we talking about here? Sure. That's a, it's one methodology. Yeah. I mean, it's yeah. definitely a thing and it, and, and it works right. Um, the amount of wine influencers that I've seen explode on Instagram and, uh, and social media in the past two years is insane. I mean, it's everywhere. I, I, it's, I can't believe it. And, and, you ha- it even boils down to really, really niche groups uh, and niche styles uh, in which people are just, you know, sharing their experience with wine. So I don't think I don't really think that wine is going anywhere. In fact, I, I think it's the opposite. I think just the the buying patterns are entirely different. I mean, given the last two years being global pandemic, like you said, Drew, no one, not a lot of people have a whole lot more money. Not everyone did exceptionally well in the last few years. Um, so you see the average bottle price that people are purchasing going down. You know, uh, prior prior to the pandemic, it was like 15 to $35, 15 to $45. You know, now people are spending between 10 to $30, right? Just across across the board. And that's, you know, that's a few dollars less. What that does is it it takes out entire swaths of American wine production. I mean, Napa and Sonoma gone. See ya. Bye-bye. Anything that Robert Parker laid his hands on isn't getting purchased anymore. Like it's just, it it isn't, no one can afford it. And it doesn't for the kids, for the kids at home. Can you please explain who Robert Parker is? Yeah. Robert Parker is a, is a wine critic and, um, you know, wrote articles and whatnot, but he, he did a lot of wine judging and um, has a whole crew now who helps him do it. But uh, he developed the hundred point scale uh, for wines. And um, he is very famously a lover of big oaky wines. He likes, he likes his wines with a lot of wood contact on them. And the reality is, is that's totally the opposite of where we see modern day palettes existing and the people who are spending money, the people who are spending money on the cocktails, people who are spending money on beer, people who are spending money on wine. They don't want those big oaky flavors, right? Like our age group, we make fun of Rombauer Chardonnay, right? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Fucking Cougar butter juice. bombs, man. Like it's, it's Cougar yeah. juice, baby. But that's like, that's the point, right? And Rombauer is this huge reputable house and that Chardonnay is outrageously expensive. Like, I think for for a bottle of it, I, I I've never bought one, so I'm swinging swinging for the the, the, the fences here. But I want to say it's like fifty five dollars. Uh, I only know the wholesale price on it, but I think wholesale is like twenty eight. Yeah, you find it for forty forty five. Forty five. That's a lot. But it, for, a for, lot for, for Chardonnay, you know, yeah, for a manipulated wine and. Um, yeah, it's 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 definitely that. I mean, especially when you have things like like Lloyd's, which is going to give you the exact same profile, but at half the price. You know, um, you know. But we see you know, we I, see other things like you know your portfolio, Drew, is is experiencing at least a little bit of love right now. The Eastern European wines, inexpensive, quality made. They've got the heritage to them. 
Um, the juice is delicious. It comes off with really interesting flavors. It's not overly, uh, overly manipulated. There's a lot of stuff going on there. And I think that the, the modern consumer within the millennial age group um, is looking for uh, an experience and they're looking for a story. Right. And they, they, they're very, very good at knowing how to spend their dollars in a, in an economical way in order to achieve that goal. Sorry, Hess, if we're not spending your, you know, hundred plus dollars on your wine that I can get for $35 from some other part of the world, you know, it just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't work. Yeah. I think you're absolutely right. For me, it comes down to experience. I mean, you know, you're always going to have backlash against whatever your parents or grandparents are into right? Like that's just not mm-hmm. going to be cool. Like you're not going to come around to it. So you're already dealing with that factor. And then, you know, similar to something like Mezcal, I think the, what we're seeing more and more of, I mean, you know, in, in Sacramento alone, we have three natural wine bars, you know, yeah. I mean, we're not a big place and we have all, three, all, all that opened up within the last year and a half. Yeah. All that opened up within the last year, year and a half. <laughs> and and it's been really fun to experience these. And I went and sat at one the other day and had this really beautiful um, white wine from from Spain. It was probably the best wine I'd ever had there. Like they're really starting to figure out their shit, right? Which is which is awesome. And and what I've just noticed is more and more people are gravitating wait, towards. Wait, back up. Best wine you've had from Spain, or best wine you've had from the wine bar? From that wine bar. Okay, heard. I just yeah. wanted to. I just wanted to make sure you yeah. weren't saying that yeah, Spain no, no. is just uh, starting to figure out their shit. No, 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 no. no. I, had, I mean, I've had some. I've had other good wines there, but it was by far the best one I've ever had there. Um, yeah. And so, you know, so with that being the case, I think there's also like this intersecting of you know people also want to know what's going into the things that they're drinking, and the reality of the situation is is that if you have a natural winemakers. Um, there's a lot more transparency with how that stuff is being produced. Whereas, you know, if you look at what California wine has become and really just wine across the world where, you know, I think it's something along the lines of like 140 different compounds can be put into wine and still be considered wine in America, which it's kind of like, what are yeah. we putting into our body? So you have, you have this cultural shift that are looking for more of that conscious stuff. And then, um, you know, and, and yeah, it's lifestyle. Right. And it's that experience and, you know, drinking something that is I kind of like untouched is is a cooler experience than, you know, this hundred and fifty dollar, you know, wine that that you don't know anything about. You're just like, like, well, why am I paying this premium, you know, for this stuff? And I think and I think that's where, you know, kind of go back to your comments, Kyle's like that's the that's where these issues are really popping up for a lot of these winemakers is that they're not able to explain why their stuff is so expensive. Right. And you can't come out. They are, but they're, they, they, they're preaching to the choir and that's how they're able to explain it. Right. The people, people who can afford to go there, the people who have access to that, right. They, they get it quote unquote. Right. It's the engaging, engaging the new next generation. But that's what I'm saying though, is that like, yeah, it doesn't matter if you, I mean, your, your current drinking base is dying. Like you need to find a new way to bring people in and they haven't found a way to justify these prices to new drinkers when they're kind of like, well, I just had a bottle that was $40 that I thought was awesome. Like, why are you asking me to pay 140 and you won't tell me anything about it? You know, Mm -hmm. like, you know, you're acting like it's some, um, 
God, what's the the phrasing that you always use or that, that they use for like ingredients and stuff like that, where they don't want to tell you um, it's going to hit me in a second, but it's uh, it's just, you know, this, this veil of secrecy that's around these wines and yeah. stuff. And when you have other people and younger winemakers coming up and, you know, and who have been able to embrace the social media and embrace the way that they present themselves to kind of be like, ask us questions, let us know things, you know, when, um, when you go to some of these places, you know, in Napa or Sonoma, you know, you're walking into these chateaus and you're kind of like, we're well, not allowed to go over there. It's like already like a, a total turnoff for most people. Right. Yeah. It's just kind of like, you're not allowed to go in this room. This is for this. Yeah. This is for that. So I don't know. I think, it's, it's, I, think it's to be I think on the other side of the coin though, um, you know, it would be nice if Napa could just bring their prices down. Right. Like, but they've kind of dug their own grave. They, they've become so popular and so expensive. And because of that, the inflation of everything else around them within that community is so expensive as well. And so, yeah, I mean, just, you know, you have, you have, it's awful. And, that, and that's what I'm, that's what it comes down to. Right. Is like the cost of goods, cost of supplies, cost of equipment, your cost of land, all of it is just insanely expensive. Whereas old world wines, Eastern European ones, they've owned this land for generations. They're not paying on it anymore, right? They've owned this equipment forever, and they're they're, they're using these heritage techniques that that uh, you know aren't you know um, you know cutting edge or anything, but uh, they produce results. They're you know they're not pumping out as much wine, you know, in order to meet that you know that threshold that they can to be as profitable as possible. Um, but, you know, yeah. California wineries have it a little shitty in that way. I mean, they kind of shot themselves in the own, their their own feet by getting so popular. Um, well, that, you, I, know, I, that's, I, you can't just drop it down to a $30 bottle of wine now. No, but but you've also got the responsibility on the the winemakers to have to have run their business correctly and, and, and done it that way. I get it. Like prices go crazy. Like you, you start to take wild swings at things, but I, I think there's also the, the need for, well, then find ways to provide higher value if you need to drive higher prices. So make decisions that begin to get that out of the people you need to get it out of, which, which I think is talking, I, I, I'll be honest. I think we're all talking to such a high end and unthreatened portion of the actual side that, that the thing I'll say is I think there's actually an access issue to good wine in general. You're, if you think about how much wine is sold from like supermarkets all the time, that's where they're going to lose all their ground. Right? So how do they do it in those spaces? Not in the natural wine bars or at the great bottle shops or, or wherever, but they're going to lose their ass on the big boy stage in Safeways and Albertsons and Whole Foods. And that ain't the same thing. So they've got to make big plays. I mean, and in the article, they talk, they make a joking reference to like got milk and that stuff, but they basically have to start from nil. Right. Cause like this thing's tumbling. Oh, I mean, yeah. I just I, I, I get it. Well, like, and, I, and the amount of money that Gallo is making and the amount of juice that they're pumping out into the market and new brands that are essentially coming from the same vineyards. Right. Like uh, mm-hmm. that are, are just slightly manipulated a little bit this way or a little bit that way. It's it's just so much of that same quality of stuff that's not not grower producer. You know, it's just no. 
mass quantities. And you know, I've I've gone and seen the the Gallo facilities, and it is fucking impressive. I will tell you that it is incredible. <laughs> if you are in if you are in California and you get a chance to go down there and you get a tour, like their wine caves are fucking incredible. I mean, they are expansive, and it's just that their their wine vats are just stunning. But they're still pumping a ton of shit juice into the market, and like and and reducing access to these middle lower tier players who don't have billions of dollars to, to pump into marketing and bottling yeah. and, you know, juice and sourcing and everything. I think I kind of, you bring up a good point. I mean, there's definitely the numbers are probably getting hit the worst in grocery stores because like that, those do, I mean, those are those, that's volume, right? Mm-hmm. That's a lot of volume. But I think that's also what this article talks about is that there's this connoisseurship that exists within the younger generation that they're just straight up not buying grocery store wine. Because why would you? Yeah, why would there's there's so many more places that you can go now and get these different things. And there Mm -hmm. probably isn't a way for a lot of these places to recapture that market, you know, Mm -hmm. because it's just it's just not going to like their their focus is entirely in all the wrong places or it's just kind of like, nope, you're just. You're just not going to bounce back, you know, and it's, it, you know, and, it, and when you, Chris, you were talking about like production levels and things like that, it actually got me thinking about, um, about Kohana and where I've had conversations with people where they're like, well, I just don't understand why it's more expensive than, than rum Clement. And it's like, listen, I love rum Clement, but that's a subsidized country that brings in outside labor to cut all their cane and stuff like that. Like they're not dealing with the labor cost of being an American worker and, and things like that and having to ship, you know, um, from an island that's truly by itself, not even like it's, you know, the Caribbean islands are much closer than, than the Hawaiian islands are. And it's just like, you know, those factors do like, you know, play in and stuff like that. And that becomes understandable. I think with these wineries, when you're kind of like, like, well, yeah, well, California real estate is, is higher. This is higher. It's like, okay, cool. Right. We haven't bridged the gap completely to to then justify this extra 7500 you know dollars on here which i don't i don't think that they ever will and and as i said i mean i think kyle it's just such a great point like there there's just no way that they're gonna be able to grasp this group now because this group has already collectively decided i'm not buying wine at grocery stores it's just not happening Full on. And, and, you know, just anecdotally, and I know we're going to move on to other stuff, but so my, my partner, you know, she, she does very well. She lives, she lives on Maui. Uh, we're celebrating Valentine's day by her enjoying a new puppy over there and me being as far away as possible. Um, <laughs> but, but her, her literal best friend is a master sommelier. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and we'll have conversations and she'll be like, well, what do I buy when I go to freaking whole foods? And the answer is nothing. How is that the answer? So like, I, you know, not to like throw it, but that's why they lost. And now they're all just going to stumble over their dicks and try to figure this thing out. But that's why they <laughs> lost for so long. They couldn't, they couldn't do it, but good. Uh, hopefully they save some dollars. I don't know. Well, you know, and tough, man. By, by that same token, we are seeing a rise in other sides, right? We are seeing natural wines, growing exponentially we're seeing rosés just pop off you know it's just for it's sure. explosive category right so i you know i 
and there are some companies that have tried engaging in that way and and it's going to be a slow and it's going to have to be a slow and consistent drumbeat to to really draw people and maintain that that um maintain any semblance of, of your past glory you know and a lot of these guys have a lot of money saved up over the years you know and they're 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 not poor you know a lot of these a lot of these wineries specifically in napa are owned by billionaires man like they're not hurting yeah you know? so so it's kind of hard it. for me to like feel too bad for them too Heart right? strings? i mean listen i i'm a i'm a millionaire empathizer more than most right I get their struggles. Okay. I want those struggles. <laughs> but in a situation like this, I'm like, the ship has yeah. sailed. This yeah. conversation's done. We're, yeah. we're moving on. We're moving on. Okay. So in our second story tonight, we are going to talk about Heaven Hill acquiring Tequila Ocho, Widow Jane, and more. The Heaven Hill brands. Um, owners of such popular labels such as Evan Williams, Rittenhouse Rye, that classic Deep Eddie Vodka, has acquired Samson and Surrey's entire portfolio. Um, we actually had someone from Samson and Surrey earlier or last year as well. Chris, do you, remember that? do you remember that guest? I sure do. Do you remember, do you remember I, him? I love me some Mo. We do love Mo as well. So we actually, I, I haven't reached out to Mo to talk about this as I'm sure he's been getting assaulted for it. But his portfolio that he was working for just got bought by Heaven Hill. Um, so again, Tequila Ocho, Widow Jane, um, Few Spirits, Bren French Whiskey, Blue Coat Gin, and Mezcal Vago um, have now all been absorbed into this to this group. Now, I'll just say that my first reaction was one of the of the ultimate ugh and disappointment and sadness. Tequila Ocho is hands down my absolute favorite tequila in the world. Um, it is the one that I recommend the most to people. I love Carlos Camarina. I think this was his pet project that he did with uh, Tomas Estes. And it's a very terroir-driven tequila, and I absolutely love it. So I obviously still have faith in Carlos to continue to produce um, you know, good tequila. But at the same time, as, you know, I do love Heaven Hill, but the rich continue to get richer. They keep buying up all these small brands. It's a really, you know, it's kind of a bummer. I'm happy for the guys who started Samson and Surrey. Congratulations on your payday. You made it, you know, go off and buy a yacht now or something. I don't know how much money it ended up being, but, um, you know, overall, I'm just, I'm just bummed. I, I just don't like to see these big, you know, groups acquire more and more brands and then you just don't know if the quality is going to be able to be maintained with the expectations that come with being owned by a multinational um so but i did i I did want to pick this story because you know like kyle you're in this position right now where you guys are building up a brand and maybe and i don't know what the plans are obviously but you know maybe that godfather offer does come you know to the owners of kohana you know, and it's like, and I'm never going to fault somebody for building something beautiful and then really benefiting for probably generations off of it. Right. But when you see things like this, I mean, what are your thoughts? And then, you know, is there ever a day where you're like, man, that would be really cool if we could take Ohana and, you know, send it out to the world through a big acquisition like this? Yeah. I, as far as the acquisition side, I think 
this Samson and Surrey, when you look at what they were trying to do, they they looked like an acquirable company. So like totally. it yeah. seems it seems like they got their goal, which I think is great. And I want people that set out, do things the right way, hire great people. Look, I have a distiller that just left Blue Coat and works for us now. And he loves them. So like I, I can't speak highly enough about like how how that side works. And if that was their goal, which it looks like, look, I don't know them, so I'm I'm not gonna speak to their thing, but like because they sold and because of how how it all sort of breaks out, good man, like that's that's what that's what the goal was. And if you were transparent the whole time with Ocho and Vago and few and widow jane and, and all of these places and you're like look this is what we're gonna do all of those brands got paid too when samson bought them or built them or did did what they did so you know the business side of things like good on you guys like fuck yes like go go do your thing now emotionally as someone who loves ocho and like thinks vago is really cool and does things in a way that like I, I like, I, I want to see some of those things be mirrored more often. I hope that a big brand like Heaven Hill could do right by them and allow the people who have controlled it and built it thus far to continue making the right decisions and just give the platform. How often has that happened? Well, that's unfortunate, <laughs> but, but let's, uh, you know, look, I, let's, let's have, I guess a little bit of hope, but yeah, I mean, so, th so there's two sides to it. Cause yeah, I, I emotionally, like, I don't want to see any dip in like how Ocho produces their juice. They're one of three tequilas. I tell people like the, the these are them, these, these, right. that that's, that's the trio that I, I recommend all the time. Right. Like I have, and Ocho is one of the three. So, so, you know, if, if what they do is they get a louder megaphone because of it, sick. And that's always the story we get. But look, everyone along the way that's making the juice or owning the companies or whatever, maybe not friends that are brand ambassadors, but all the, all the high-end people, they all know the score. And they made choices. And they, they built it to do that thing. And so, mm -hmm. look, man, there it is. It's, there, there's, there's the thing. There's the dream, right? Yeah, I, I totally agree. I mean, and again, I, I, th I think you're right. It was it was built to be sold. Like that's why they had the diversity amongst the portfolio. Mm -hmm. um, you know, it was very attractive, solid sales, always trending products as well. I mean, they made the right decisions and did, you know, and like you said, for our, our listeners, I mean, you guys heard, you know, Mo on this podcast last year, like the guy is awesome. And he does really great things for them. And, and I do know that because I know a couple of the different uh, ambassadors for them that Heaven Hill did send them like a welcome gift pack. I don't know what was in it. I only saw the box and it just said, welcome to the Heaven Hill family, which oh, is a classy cool. move. Yeah. You know, I mean, again, it's one of the bigger companies who, who tends to do things more so the right way. But um, uh, Chris, what do you think? Well, you know, you and I talked about this the other night. We were just texting back and forth. Um, and uh uh, you know, initially with you, 100% of I, I'm just tired of seeing these acquisitions all the time. Um, and even more so kind of irritated that now all of these all of these brands are uh, all within Southern. Um, and it just 
gives them more shit to make me buy from them <laughs> again and again. And it's just fucking obnoxious. Um, but apart from the business owner side of things and the, the bitching about having to pay certain companies way too much money. Um, I love these brands. I mean, Widow Jane's fantastic. Blue Coat Gin, I've been a fan of since I really learned what goes into making gin. You know, Mezcal Vago, I fucking loved forever. Mm. Uh, and I'm right there with you guys on Ocho. Like, it's just it's just quality juice that is irreplaceable and will be so sad if it loses any any of that vigor. I will say, though, I when Drew and I were initially uh, talking about this, my reaction was sort of um, warmed by the fact that I, I can't think of a single brand that Heaven Hill has acquired that they've ruined. Yeah. Um, I like, I legit can't think of a single one. Um, I mean, they've got some funny ones in there, you know, like I, I don't really care about Palma that much, you know, but like, it's not like they acquired it from someone. They were like, ah, pomegranate juice. Ah. Uh, it just is, you know, one of the things that they made and they put out in the world and, you know, it does what it does. It's fine. Um, you know, I think they acquired Cantone at some point in time too. the ginger liqueur mm. and still exactly the same as far as I can tell. Not that I drink a ton of it, but you know, it does the job. So from that from that perspective, like if this brand is gonna get purchased by another, swallowed up by another larger um, company, I'm kind of okay with this one being being the way that this goes, right? Uh, yeah. No, and and honestly, like if you look at who they are as a company, and and for those of you keeping track at home, like as a business leader in the spirit space, it's something I pay a ton of attention to, but you got to look at who these companies are owned by and how they're, who they're beholden to. Right. And heaven Hill is still majority family owned. So they're going to be able to make some decisions that maybe aren't always just driving to the bottom line. Right. Whereas there are a lot of very big publicly traded companies that can't do the same thing. They always have to be, and I'm going to do big air quotes, innovating, Right. Um, To to create these (laughs) new spaces. And so they they actually don't have it. It's the same thing that, you know, when Suntory acquired Beam and it's like, oh, you went from being publicly traded to like another company that doesn't have to worry about these other people's opinions doing it. Certain things actually got left alone more often. I mean, when's the last time you saw like a what was their terrible like. Jim Beam white whiskey that was flavored. I mean, they still do tons of terrible shit. Don't get me wrong, but like, it, it, there's less of it. So, yeah, it's it, it's interesting. Heaven Hill might might be able to actually give a springboard to this. Look, well, somebody's you know, eventually going to do it, right? And the the other side of this is uh, it's not stated anywhere in the article, and, and a little bit of research I could do, I, I couldn't find any information on it, and maybe I have to reach out to Mo and he can say, but. I don't know what percentage ownership this is too, right? Like, I don't know. Samson Surrey probably just sold off their, their entire portfolio percentage, right? Mm-hmm. Almost certainly that's varied percentages within different companies, you know? So they acquired those percentages and we just don't know what they are. It, uh, you know, my guess is for a majority of them, they're minor, they're uh, minority ownerships, you know, like I, well, I, I just, dis- I totally disagree. You I think totally so? I disagree. Absolutely. I don't think that 
I don't think that you you're a company as big as Heaven Hill and you go, you know what we need minority stakes like in this stuff. But I mean, I mean it's incredibly had, that's incredibly common. I mean, but, oh, yeah. but I think but I think but I think at this point, like when you're buying a package deal like that, you know, I think you really are to be like, no, we want to have control over these brands because you know, there's there's like the stuff that we see from Diageo, like their innovation brands and whatnot, right? Like they have subsidiary companies that invest in these things and they build them up slowly and things like that. I mean, these are brands that are a lot more established, have a global footprint and they're, and, and I think when you're heaven Hill and you're acquiring these things, like, you know, you want, you know, to have as much as that as possible, you know, and, and again, we'll wait to see like what the numbers come out and, and whatnot. But I think that, you know, I, I do think that there's there's moves to be made here, and they they were probably big ones. There's probably these are probably big parts of the ownership. I know? mean, now when um, I'm saying minority ownership, I'm not saying five percent, ten percent. You know, like we're talking we're talking probably just at the threshold of forty nine percent, forty eight percent, right? Some 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 companies just want to be able to have that story of being family owned, um, and maintain that through through through. And I you know I don't know what that looks like for few and what that looks like for widow Jane. You know, I, I just have no clue. I wouldn't be surprised if it was a mixed bag. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah. I and mean, that's definitely something that we can continue to explore. And I'm sure we'll find out, you know, more about it. I mean, with, in terms of like tequila Ocho, I mean, obviously with the loss of Tomas Estes last year, I mean, who really knows what those numbers truly look like right now. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and, and, you know, Carlos has the Tapatio brand. He has the um, El Tesoro brand and, you know, and then obviously has Ocho. So it would be, it would be really interesting to see kind of what that means and, you know, where, where it is. But I, I just, I feel like when you buy this mini brand, it's like you're, it's like you're kind of you're kind of getting a majority stake in them. Like if you bought a single one, I could see I could see the thirty to to forty nine percent, right? If you bought a single brand, I think you see that a lot. But when you're buying like the, this portfolio, like I think you want control over. I mean, it was appealing enough to invest this type of money to not only buy one brand but to buy seven or eight brands all at one time underneath this book and to buy out, you know these guys, I think that, I think it just makes more sense from that corporate level. It's like, no, 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 if we're going to make this kind of investment, we need to make sure that we're at at least at 51. You know what I mean? Sure. I, I hear what you're yeah. saying. I'm just, I'm not sure if I, I'm not sure if I entirely agree. That's okay. One of no, us will be wrong eventually. Well, and, and, and make no mistake, the, the liquor business is so dirty. You may never be able to figure out what and who and how anyhow, but that it, it's it's crazy when you look at it how obvious it is that they have both imported brands that they don't actively control all of the manufacturing of and then they have manufacturing brands too so you've got this sort of like dual sides it, it seems like a really smart move for heaven hill even if all you get are the manufacturing spaces in the u.s with few blue coat and widow jane because like it's gonna that stuff's booming man and like they're saying they're growing 60 percent per year 40 million in sales like samson and surrey was doing work oh yeah they put in work 
They put in work. I mean, they changed the whole the whole packaging of Blue Coat in the last like two mm-hmm. years. Uh, you know, Widow Jane came out of nowhere. You yeah. know, it's I, it really. I visited Widow Jane in 2011 in Red Hook. They got so, they're like upstairs downstairs. They have like a chocolate manufacturer there, uh, Papa Pietro or something like that, Pietro, some, and it's like it was tiny. And like to see them as one of the things, I'm like, holy cow, how cool! Yeah, yeah. But emotionally, I think- Drew, I feel you. I feel your pain, brother. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, you know, I mean, again, yeah. I like one of the, one of the, in, in that conversation that that Chris and I had before. Just and you know, and and how the how the you know how the hot dog gets made, right? How the sausage yeah. gets made. It's it, we we talk about this stuff all the time, and that's why we decided to start this podcast because we were just having these conversations and. You know, like I just thought of um, like in California, we had we've had a lot of, you know, big buyouts and Southern's been behind a lot of them. And they bought out this distributor Epic and like they're they're gone. They're just gone now. And uh, and it's and it just it's a bummer. And I hate seeing that. I hate seeing people leave their jobs. I hate the fact that, you know, again, the rich get richer. It's another brand for Southern to either completely ignore or to leverage against smaller accounts to be like, Hey, I know you really want this shit, but we really need to move a lot of, you know, crappy vodka. So how much do you really want it? So it's just, uh, I don't know. I mean, and of course you'll see the big, you'll see the big boom initially, which is always happens with Southern acquisitions, right? Is that it'll, it'll be everywhere. You know, you'll just, you'll be walking into all these stores that would never have thought to carry this up, which is great. But then it sits there for, you know, years, which ends up making a fun Indiana Jones find in a couple of years. You're like, Oh my God, I can't believe this still exists. But <laughs> it does here at this store that got force fed it when Southern was trying to hit POD numbers. So uh, that's just my little soapbox. Um, all right, let's move on. You know, who's dope them over there. Okay, now time for my favorite segment. This is our Dope Follows. We tell you who's dope, who you should follow. It could be an Instagram account, Facebook, Facebook group, book, podcast, movie, whatever the case may be. We think it's dope and you should check it out too. So Kyle, kick us off. Who is your dope follow? Oh, my dope follow is Zachary Carter. Uh, it is, he, he, he wrote a book that I think is probably – off pace for this particular podcast, but because I believe that humans are meant to be uh, vast and interesting and uh, see see big pictures. Uh, there's this really amazing book called The Price of Peace, Money, Democracy, and the Life of John Maynard Keynes. Uh, it is the most relevant book I've read in the last decade. Uh, I found it amazing. And if you can't read a 650 page book, try but if you really can't it's, it's if it's if it's tldr just listen to ezra klein's podcast with the author from about a year ago and it's worth it um it, it's an amazing dive into a time and a place uh that is vastly different than our own and i think something that's really cool i mean look there's there's a lot of dope follows in the liquor business and i think you guys have hit a lot of them uh looking outside and seeing some of the things and how uh, monetary systems were created and looked at. And, and this book is just 
really, really fantastic. Um, and to stay on the overachiever and go back to the liquor side, not to steal any podcast love from you guys, but I do love the boys over <laughs> at the Rumcast, uh, yeah. Will and John. So if folks love rum, they should go over there. If they don't love rum, I don't think it makes a ton of sense. But if you do love rum, <laughs> go go over there because they they get super rum geeky and fun and 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 all of that. It's uh, you know, it, it they're a good follow as well. But no no bullshit. The price of peace. That's that would be my thing. Nice. Yeah, the Rumcast is is a really great podcast. I like those guys. They're actually very inspiring to me. Like we were we had started before them. But they definitely had their shit together before we did, and um, so I just was—I was, I was like, "Oh, maybe we should step it up a little bit, and um, you know, really take this to the next level." So, and they—I mean, just this week they got Mitch Wilson from Black Tot Rum. So, yeah, obviously Mitch is a good friend of mine, and happy happy to see him, you know, uh, on that, and looking forward to listening to it. Uh, Chris, who's your dope follow? Uh, mine is uh, mine's a fun one, and it's on uh, it's on Instagram, and it's Hey Kim and Tyler at Hey Kim and Tyler. Uh, it is uh, a husband and wife who just talk shit to each other. And they just, t- <laughs> they, they like riff. They like make a joke to, like one of them makes a joke, you know, talking shit to the other one. And the other one has a super witty comeback with like another joke or like just a comeback. It's great. It's just a, it's just a feel good, fun, you know, it's, it reminds me of me and my wife. We talk a lot of shit to each other. She uh, she keeps me in my place pretty pretty well. So uh, it it's it's a fun one for me. I like That's it. It's great. I love it. Oh, and they're Irish, so yep. there's accents it, involved. It just makes it makes it that much more fun. No, oh. <laughs> now we're talking. Very good. Um, cool. All right. So I have I have kind of two. Um, First, I want to start off, and this is more of like a shout out. It's actually three guys within the shout out. Um, so I'm just I'm I'm taking advantage of all the different rules and things right now. So um, with that being the case, the the first thing I want to shout out is uh, Buddy Newby, Garrett Van Vleck, and Henry Devere. Okay, those are three big bar guys in the Sacramento market, and they're just three guys that have been very awesome to me over the past six weeks. You know, I think this is an industry where we talk about mental health a lot and getting better and things like that. And those guys just really stepped up for me on a personal level over the past week and just simply by listening and just kind of doing different things. And so I just want to say, uh, you know, we all struggle at different times for different reasons. And, you know, it's good to have people like guys like them in your life that you can kind of just word vomit on and they don't even have to say much. Just the fact that they listen was really great. So I want to just say thank you to those guys. I buddy think listens. I don't, I'm pretty confident Garrett doesn't neither does Henry, but if they ever do, here's my shout out to you guys. No, Garrett's too cool um, to listen to a podcast. He is uh, definitely too cool, but you know, I always he, get excited. He and I have a, have a chess game uh, where I have to, I have to embarrass him this week. So he's been talking a lot of shit about the chess thing. So I can only imagine he's a, He's a very smart individual. And then a um, little bit more of a uh, little bit more of a traditional uh, shout out here uh, for, for our dope follow and kind of a callback to the beginning of this conversation where if you grew up really predominantly in the nineties and had formative years, like you'll really appreciate this. especially if you're an NBA fan, but Charles Oakley just released his autobiography 
And if you were a fan of Charles Oakley, it's called The Last Enforcer. And so it basically just talks about his time in the NBA, obviously starting with the Bulls and then going to the Knicks and those really epic series oh, throughout yes. the 90s. Yeah. Um, and then if you, and if you, you know, depending on your, your um, familiarity with, with those series, I mean, Charles Oakley is a bad dude. I mean, like a guy who would jack people up. Um, I don't want to give away the book, and this does happen in the first couple of pages, but he goes, you know, there's a rumor out there that I punched Charles Barkley at a players union meeting. And I just want to come out and say that is not true. I'm sick and tired of these rumors. I don't want to hear it. What I will say is I slapped the shit out of him. And I just was like, <laughs> and here we go. Um, and it's, you know, it's funny. I mean, Charles Oakley is a guy that doesn't have to worry about anybody coming after his lunch money. So no. he goes after a lot of people. And I'll also say this, like, I don't think him and Patrick Ewing are close friends despite playing together for eight years. Like he has a lot to say about the man. Um, so again, that's called the last enforcer. I'll say Char- yeah. Charles Oakley always made it onto my uh, NBA live 95 team. Every time you needed someone just to like, you know, to get the boards and knock that's out right. the other star players. So All right. Right let's literally Michael Jordan had Charles Oakley going around with him for years after they were done playing because he was just not to be trifled with. I mean, yeah, well, Oak, they, Oak was a man. Yeah, it's 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 funny. I'm, I'm actually I'm listening to the audio uh, book along with my boss right now, and we're just like going back and forth with the different quotes from the book. Like it's 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 great, and especially if you if you watch basketball at that time and remember those series. I mean, it's definitely it's like going in a um, going into like a a time machine, you know, cause like, there's just, there just doesn't feel like there's guys like this anymore. No. You yeah. Know? It's a like, different game. Like really? Yeah, like, it's, just a different like, game. It, it's a very different game. And, and he does talk about that at length. You know, it's like somehow these guys have gotten softer, which is, I always love old man gripes when it comes to the NBA game. Cause like nobody complains more about the game now than NBA players, like, like former ones, like it's the best. Cause they're all so cranky, especially the guys who ran into the buzzsaw of Michael Jordan. But the difference here is that, you know, Oak and Jordan are like really good friends and Jordan did the forward for the book. So, oh, wow. um, so, and I mean, this came out at the beginning of this month. So yep. he references the last dance. He's got all the trash to talk. Like I said, him and Patrick are not friends. Um, also had fun things to say about Isaiah and magic. Like it is just like, you just there the whole time kind of being like, Oh my God, like what is happening? Like, this is amazing. So All right. when, uh, check, when, check that out. When we're done, we're going to stay on. and I'm going to tell you about the three straight cigars. I smoked with Dominique Wilkins on Maui and the good stories, but I'm not doing this on podcast. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. <laughs> I will stay up late for that. I'll stay up late for that. <laughs> um, but Hey, you guys, those were some pretty dope follows. Yes. The music for the Good Bottle Podcast is orchestrated by the Moore Brothers and produced pretty damn well by me. Thank you. You're welcome. And before we go kill these bottles that we've been drinking, we ask that if you've enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Also share these episodes with all your friends. 
Uh, you can follow us on Instagram or Facebook at the Good Bottle Podcast or on our personal accounts. Mine is D Garrison Six. Chris is Chris Sinflair. Um, Kyle, where can they find you? Where can they find Kohana? All yeah, the things. Ko- Kohana Rum uh, at Kohana Rum for all the social socials. Uh, KohanaRum.com. And if you want to find me, come to the distillery. Uh, you can also support the podcast by visiting our Etsy shop get yourself a really cool sweatshirt or a fanny pack you know how much we love that and support our desire to buy more Charles Oakley books or you can check out anchor.fm slash goodbottlepodcast and if you would like for us to cover a story or if you're working on a brand that wants to be featured please email us at thegoodbottlepodcast at gmail.com and as a reminder you can purchase the bottles you drink on this episode at thegoodbottleshop.com and until next time you know who's Cheers. That? Not that one. That's the button. Cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Cheers. Oh, Kyle, we have to tell you the story about how Chris got cocky and almost got his identity hacked. It was a